Hello and welcome to Gooey Quest episode 319. I'm your host, uh, the remaining Mike Apps, aka Wheels, and with me as always. Uh, recently class changed to Paladin. Still the same pay grade. David McBurney, Family Master. Nice. Uh, it's been a good few weeks for RPGs. I mean, I think Baldur's Gate 3 launched today? Yes. So, I mean, I'm just... I haven't... I'm assuming it's good. Through. I'm assuming it's good. I haven't played it, but I've yeah. heard good things. So it's like, it's, oh yeah. Wait. Yeah. It's Larian. <laughs> so. I don't think Larian has really missed since Divinity Original Sin. So. No. Plus the uh, the um, early access models seem to do good work for that game. Yeah, it's like JC Servants streaming BG uh, three. Haven't checked it yet because I do intend to play it probably in like a month. Apparently, it runs fine on the deck, which oh, is nice. the biggest thing I needed to know. Oh, and by that point, it might be running fine on a version of the deck that isn't. Forcing yeah. me to like worry about proton experimental or not. Oh, it's a good <laughs> thing I didn't try and take over the RP Gamer channel. You're free. <laughs> it wasn't laziness at all. Publishers are insane for not backing Larian. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. It it took them a while to really hit where they hit their stride, but at this point, I'm kind of surprised that there hasn't been an attempt to like. I guess BG. I don't know. Who's officially publishing Baldur's Gate 3? I think they're self-publishing it. Unless it's like through um, Wizards of the Coast directly. I mean, I don't think Wizards of the Coast really publishes video games, so... They did uh, that... Slice enough if they have to. They, there is on that Dark Alliance game a Wizards of the Coast logo, and that is all. Oh yeah, that game was bad though, so no yeah. one remembered that. Mm -hmm. uh yeah no it's self-published like it's kind of like I, I would imagine someone's gonna try to swoop in and publish their next game for this one uh, uh given this one i should say mm -hmm. so god i forgot that there was a stadia version of uh Baldur's gate 3 now oh god Really? Won't be seeing that version. No. To begin with, uh, won't be seeing that one. But it would be funny if they actually produced it, and everyone's like, "Why?" No, there wouldn't really be a way for anyone to verify they produced it since the Stadia servers are all gone. True, it's all cloud-based. I'd be curious. Yeah, I'd be curious what the last uh, build like if there was a. Probably at least like the beginnings of a build that ran on Stadia, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, yeah, uh, so that's that seems like the biggest news currently running. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure Any Dragon Knight suffered big time due to lack of cash. Fascinating interviews for that game. I remember picking up Divinity of the Dragon Knight Saga, the 360 port, which was inexplicably published by Atlas. Still don't quite know how that happened. Budai, what's up? Yeah, hey, Budai. But yeah, that, that was a really weird, like, that just felt like a weird logo to see on that game. Although that was definitely 
you needed to play Divinity 2, that was the version to play because that had the expansion and also a bunch of quality of life updates over the original release. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. It feels like they kind of hit their stride post uh, once they did uh, Original Sin, and they're kind of continuing on that pathway. So I'm interested in playing Baldur's Gate 3 at some point. There's Baldur, there's Gates. Mm -hmm. Who can say? Um, there's Mind Flayers. Yeah, there's a lot of Mind Flayers. Get used yes. to those. Um, or even mind flayers if we're going to be uh, early Final Fantasy. Oh, now we'll get sued. Um, I'm, so yeah, it was kind of funny how how much the original Final Fantasies or first three mapped their bestiaries to the Fiend Folia and Monster Manual. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a reason they had to stop doing that. <laughs> oh no, they just found better names. I mean, they still have corals. They just they can't. I mean, they have to call them corals and not displacer beasts. Yeah, yeah. Some of them actually did get redesigned. Yeah, most of the really obvious ones. Oh, some God, of the less obvious the... ones. Ochu, yeah. I forget what fucking like train of mistranslation gets to Ochu. Ochu, O T Y U G H. Except yeah. that the translators from Japanese to English had never seen the monster manual and did not realize what the Japanese writers were using as a base for this thing. <laughs> Probably worked out for the best in that sense. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm thinking like ogres and ogre mages in the swamp temple, um, swamp cave in Final Fantasy One. Come to ogre battle fight. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. But yeah, so what, what, what have we been playing? What have we been playing? Oh, I was just gonna, uh, before we oh. did that, I was going to say the news came out like over the weekend that Remnant Two had sold a million copies already, which is. It seems to have done awesome. better than they were expecting it to. Yeah. Uh, how often do you watch Twitch for drops? I have never once done that in my life. I don't think I've I, I don't, ever I, done I don't that. fully understand. Yeah, because like Fireminer's bringing up uh, getting a Baldur's Gate 3 armor from watching, and like, yeah, I, I mean, that's I guess that's kind of neat. I. I've never done it, and I wouldn't even know how it functions. I assume it requires like linking some accounts and shit. The answer is that uh, is that uh, I think all of us are too old and brain over for that. So, ad break in progress. Lame. But yeah, uh, Remnant Remnant seems to have like based on how they're talking, it sounds like it did better than they were expecting it to. Which yeah, it's always nice to see something like that a little underdog outperforming. Uh, oh yeah, Nintendo also, also released their quarterlies. Oh really? Say hello to the new second best-selling Zelda game ever. Wow. Yeah, I was I was thinking about I was thinking about bringing that up, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How? It's, it's already sold like 18 million Holy and something fuck. copies worldwide. Yeah, 18 and a half million, uh, putting it at second place behind Breath of the Wild, which is sitting at like 32 million, something like that. So it's well on pace to overtake Breath of the Wild next year. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's also a case of just like it's weird to think about because like people who have played games for a long time have always fucking loved Zelda. But like the best selling Zelda before this was like I think either it was Twilight Princess because that was a Wii launch game and that sold like 9 million copies. Damn. So like the it's it's one of those situations where like Nothing else in the franchise even touches the kind of numbers that. Uh, yeah, this is this is right up there there with comparing like Animal Crossing: New Horizon to the entire rest of its own series. <laughs> <laughs> and that's already a series that sells quite respectably. Yeah. But. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that that came out. The Switch is now at like 130 million units sold. If they, if they keep supporting it for another couple of years, we might actually see it reach PS2. Damn. Yeah. That's it's around 145, 150 million. Yeah. I could see that. Uh, talking about maybe um, looking at a new console in the next year or two. That is the 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 current rumor is that like they finally sent final dev kits to partners mm-hmm. with the intention of launching next year. That's the rumor. Uh, presumably, like, trusted partners have probably had non-final dev kits for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those those are always kind of up and down. Uh, one of the, like, as far as non-final dev kits, one of the few things uh, that I've ever heard about, like, what has been done over non-final dev kits is usually, like, a few times I can think of trusted partners getting non-final dev kits and it ending up increasing the amount of memory on the, uh, on the system. Uh, both the Xbox 360 mm-hmm. and the Switch at various points uh, had like half their uh, final memory configuration, and those numbers changed. I seem to recall hearing that it was like Capcom that specifically requested an, a RAM increase on the Switch for just general work RAM. It mm. makes sense. Yeah. Capcom and other developers push for Nintendo to increase the Switch's RAM to at least 4 gigabytes. Is that how much it has? 4? Yeah, that's its general its general work RAM is 4 gigabytes of LPDDR4. So, one of those things, like, I would suspect that this new thing, like, probably either 8 or 16 gigs. Uh, that'd just be the guess. But yeah, it, it sounds like they they've sent out final dev kits if the rumors are to be trusted. So oh, different thing to look forward to. Apparently, uh, next Tuesday at nine p.m. my time, they're announcing a new Atelier title. Yeah, Ooh, I'm curious. And it, and it specifically says Shinsaku, so this is not going to be a remake. Hmm. So we might so see the beginning of the next of... trilogy, or... New Dust Game. New Dust Game. New Dust Game. Yeah, Dust perhaps. Because, I mean, honestly, I'm... I'd, I would really have to check the actual English translation here, but I'm... I know that, um... Nelke, the... The, uh... The big composite game... Yeah, the, the um, crossover specifically one. An, specifically announced within it... Um... um Atelier Rurua. And in a very similar scene, hinted that there may be another Dusk game coming. 
Hmm. Like that. I mean, it wasn't as blatant as, um, as Pamela kind of going hee hee. Expect a, expect a new addition to the family to uh, to Rorona, which she actually said in a scene in that game. Hmm. Um, but there was another a similar scene with the Dusk protagonists where it was there. From an outside outside point of view, you could kind of assume she might be talking about a new game coming. Mm-hmm. And I've always been thinking it needs a fourth game, just because the four elements are very big, a very big theme in that series. So I mean, we've already got ground of dusk, um, sky of dusk, sea of dusk. We need flame of dusk. Mm-hmm. So, plus, we've never actually seen central. Let's see. So. Uh... Anyway, we will find out next Tuesday, and I shall be very happy. Sweet. You'll hear it next week. Uh, yes. Speaking of announcements like that, there is some kind of... Um, I don't know if it's the full Embracer group, but it's some kind of Embracer presentation on the 11th. They're going to be announcing shit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, um, and let's welcome news. Where was this? Um... I found this here on Dengeki. Where would that go? Um, it's, okay, it's updated again. Um, it was something, something Square Enix. There we go. Square Enix new NFT art project. I'm like, dude, no. Oh, man. Yeah, no. That's that's been kicking around for like a year at this stage. Yeah. Allow uh, this campaign. You make a roadmap. Yeah. I was just I was like, oh, it's still going. Great. Yeah, because when they first trademarked it, it was called like Symbiogenesis, and people thought it might be a Parasite Eve thing. Yeah, it's still called Symbiogenesis. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. They bothered trademarking it. That was probably their intended name. But yeah, like people mm-hmm. saw that trademark and thought it might be related to Parasite Eve, and thankfully it wasn't, but it still sucks. <laughs> um, I mean, see. I think I think a lot of us would welcome a Parasite Eve sequel that did not, or that was better than Third Birthday. Yeah, but I said thankfully it wasn't on the basis that if it was going to be for NFTs, that would have been bad. Um, yeah. Uh, Budai asks, what about Pikmin? Someone must be da- buying those dang games. Uh, like, Pikmin 4 sold like 400,000 units in Japan, which is a pretty strong launch. Yeah. For um, my my favorite little fruity bottles from the convenience store were coming with, um, like, Pikmin bottle caps. Mm-hmm. So like um, or bot um for shutting up um shutting bottles that you've already opened. So mm-hmm. I've got like five or six of those now in different colors. <laughs> yeah, I, I suspect that uh, Pikmin Four ends up the best-selling Pikmin by a mile at like. It certainly does uh, seem to be the trend. Oh hey, it's just thanks, really Thank you for gifting a sub to Fanboy. Doomerang. Yeah, now I don't have to. Now I don't have to watch your goddamn ads. <laughs> the ads we make no money off of. It's great. It's the best. We Thank love you, you, Twitch. We don't. <laughs> you just but say yeah. that so, because we're legally obliged to. Yes. Yes. Okay. But yeah, I, I suspect that that'll be number one selling Pikmin with a bullet. Current a title currently held by the Switch version of Pikmin Three, which has sold like three million copies. No mm-hmm. terrible return. Um, but yeah. Uh, 
But yeah, otherwise, I, I mean, I don't have a lot of uh, like new game news or anything. Yeah. Let's see. Checking through the Gekki, but checking a couple more of these things that are in the uh, comment section. Fireminer says, "How the hell does Gus put out a new game so soon after Rise of Three? Multiple teams, uh, mature yeah. engine. Uh, yeah, Gus did really good at managing this. Yeah, they. Uh, the the way I would describe it is just like the the." Those those are the two core things, like multiple teams, mature engine, and not having like outsized expectations for what they can do with a single game, uh, which is All probably part of why yeah. they structure Adelir as trilogies. Yeah, I mean, it's been their MO since the very beginning that if they have one game, then they're going to have multiple other games based on pretty much the exact same engine, mm -hmm. and then upgrade at the next generation of console yeah. quite often. And the, so, that sort like, of gives um, them breathing room. Yeah, I mean, like, also, previous year, Sophie 2, I mean, one of the mm. things I actually credited it for was a very adroit use of recycling every possible bit of graphics from Ryza 2 and Sophie 1. Um, <laughs> that, that game made very good use of previously assembled assets. It was quite obviously mm. doing it, but in a way that made sense with the rest of the setting since it was supposed to be in a dream world that was recycled for everybody's thoughts. Anyway, so. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, I don't know if they're going to be doing anything to the extent of Ryza 3 anytime soon, because that was just insane. That's um, also them using the fact that they had already made Ryza 1 and 2, so. Well, that's the thing. I mean, Ryza 1's map is only, okay, it's about 90% of Ryza 3's first map. Yeah. Rise but that's what I mean. It's the you can make that bigger map because you've already made one and two. Yeah, <laughs> uh, maps two, three, and four are all completely different in appearance and design and topography <laughs> and environment. Pretty much everything from the first map. Hmm. So. And then for yeah. then as a free DLC, they brought in the entire map of Ryza two, hmm. which I've yet to look through. But yeah, but there. Uh... <laughs> And okay. Fireminer asking why they why Koei is having so much trouble with uh, Dynasty Warriors, and the answer is that uh, completely shaken confidence about what to do with the core Dynasty Warriors series after Dynasty Warriors Nine came out and ate shit. Yeah. Uh, they kind of tried to like Frankenstein the corpse back together into something that was more traditional Dynasty Warriors with empires. But otherwise, they, you know, it's one of those things. Like, what are they gonna? They can, they like, they need to, like, sort of rebuild the technology and rethink what they're gonna do with it because it's been in kind of a, the core like Dynasty Warriors bit has been in a rut for quite a while. So, uh, I think that they're, you know, back to the drawing board, and that's kind of the the, uh, the tragic uh, other half of things. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Uh, I asks, now that stuff like Monster Hunter, Yakuza, and Adelir has seemed to hit, 
hit overseas, what big Japanese titles that are popular in the homeland are still uh, ripe to produce here, I guess, in terms of, like, things that could still break big here in the English-speaking world. pretty much everything that they could manage has. Most everything managed. else is dead. <laughs> and the rest is dead. I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see what um, what comes of the Metal Max series after this, but I don't know what it would be considered manageable in America at this point. Yeah, I feel like it's like Metal Max and like, to a greater extent, something like Trails, which is not huge, but it's definitely a bigger RPG series relative mm -hmm. to the RPG market in Japan than it is in English. Yeah, but in order for Trails to become big, you're going to have to find a lot of gamers suddenly willing to read a lot. Listen, we just have to find a bunch of middle-aged men. I think Trails has found most of its core audience already. <laughs> well, that was that was partly me joking, but apparently uh, various aspects of the series in Japan have developed a reputation of like, oh no, our core constituency is middle-aged dudes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, consider how long they've been making this game, these series, or the series. I mean, they've held on to fans long enough for their fans to become middle-aged dudes. Yeah, I mean, if you just, if you started with uh, Trails in the Sky, uh, first chapter, when it initially released on PC in Japan, you started 19 years ago. So that's... Only uh, that, wow. Yeah, that's when the that's when the Trails uh, subseries began. Mm -hmm. and then I believe it was ported to PSP in like 2006. That's not right. Hard to say. But yeah, uh, and that would be presumably where the youngest part of the audience would have initially come from was PSP ports of Trails in the Sky. Mm -hmm. So even them, 17 years. Uh, let's see. Is there any way to make strategic games more popular? Is Pikmin's current sales performance the best Nintendo can expect? Making it playable with mouse and keyboard? That's not going to make it popular with anyone who isn't already playing them. Mm. Uh, yeah. Is there any other Nintendo franchises that are even more niche than Pikmin and F-Zero to ever get a continuation? Uh, I mean, depends upon what you mean by franchise. Because, like, if you want to dig into things that, like... There are a couple of entries in this, but like, there's no human being. That, like, you're you're digging into stuff like Doshin the Giant. Uh, and even is, I'm not quite sure what that is. It is a sort of god game where you run around as like Doshin the Giant and uh, alter the environment in a sort of populist-esque fashion to like. Uh, you know, help the people that are worshipping you or fuck them up, then you'll turn into Joshin the Giant. But... Oh, Joshin. Yeah, Joshin. The... Yeah. Okay. But yeah, it was a weird N64 disk drive game that also got a GameCube port that came out in Japan. Well, the, the GameCube port came out in Europe. That's the only English version of any version of Doshin. And then there's a N64 disk drive expansion pack that has like a, a name that if I said it, you would think I had made it up. Okay. How bad uh, is the game? Or name? Let me pull this up. It's, uh, yeah, Doshin the Giant uh, Tinkling Toddler Liberation Front Assemble. 
<laughs> okay. You're right. You're right. That's one of those names that could only have come from Japan and nobody would ever believe you. Yep. Uh, yeah, that was a weird expansion pack that doesn't even play the same way. It's just that the save data between the two games interacts with each other. It's weird. Uh, I don't think there's a universe where you can sell Doshin the Giant in basically any territory at this point, but I would say that, like, in terms of super niche, essentially impossible to market, that's that would probably be my pick for there's no, this is never coming back. <laughs> can you tell me the name of that again, please? Uh, Doshin the Giant Tinkling Toddler Liberation from the Temple. <laughs> which takes a very different perspective of the game okay yeah it's like a weird like pseudo side-scrolling thing from like the perspective of like someone around ocean it's weird it's a weird ass thing it's it's very funny that in the n64 era nintendo was keenly aware that they had lost a lot of third parties and so like spent weird amounts of money uh ensuring that people would make just weird ass games uh and then half of those games didn't even come out on the n64 and i don't mean didn't come out on the n64 in the sense of came out on like the gamecube half of them came out on other companies platforms uh because, like, okay. in, the N64, in the N64 era, Nintendo uh, co-founded, like, a weird, like, l game development corporation. Uh, like, it wasn't, it wasn't a company that made games. It was a company that helped provide seed money for fledgling developers to make games. Uh, it was called Marigold. Games. What's okay. that? It promoted games, or promoted. Yeah, like it allowed them to happen, uh, but it was called Marigold Management. It was like forty percent Nintendo, and sixty percent a company, a Japanese company called Recruit. Uh, and uh, it helped to provide like money and promotion for a bunch of companies with weird ass names, like Umbrella, Clever Trick, and Saru Brunei. And I always remember Sadu Brunei because Sadu Brunei uh, made the game that came to America as Cubivore. Cubivore, uh, okay. Yeah, in Japan it was Dobutsu Bancho, uh, which. Okay, I actually recognize that name. Oh. Yeah. And then, but inexplicably, one of the other. <laughs> Like, Sadu Brunei, while getting, like, this support, made a game called uh, Jungle Park, which is a weird-ass game. Extremely strange. I cannot describe what is actually happening in Jungle Park. But Jungle Park only came out on PlayStation Saturn. Huh. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just weird shit. Weird shit. Um, but, yeah, uh, basically anything that came out on the 64DD is weird as shit. Um... Somebody joined your game. <gasps> it did happen. It's technically not my game. 
is Game & Watch considered a franchise, or is it folded into Wario these days? I wouldn't say it's particularly folded into Wario, it's, but I wouldn't, per se, call it a franchise so much as an aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. Wario sucks. Wario's fine. Oh, oh like lag. Lag. Hollywood, Hollywood would like you to know, don't shoot the corpse ones, and they won't catch fire. <laughs> oh, you to stab them. Touche. It's like watching Primitive Man discover fire. <laughs> Do RPG players uh, even want more bite-sized design, or is the deep play all of Persona Trails and hardcore Western RPGs to design to aim for? I think, like, the the issue is when you say, do RPG players, like, RPG players are a big group of people, not, and you can make... We're not a monolith here. I mean, we play can... monolith games, but we aren't a monolith. <laughs> the, the way I would describe it is that, like, there's a large enough addressable market on both ends. Like, there are tons of people that are weird, broken people, like the kinds of people that uh, talk on or listen to a podcast like this. No offense, Matt. You are all wonderful people. Uh, but uh, broken in the same fashion where it's like, yes, I will just uh, follow. I, I will just play an infinite amount and plumb the depths of this, like, uh, this lore and this story and these characters. I'll just keep following them as deep as they'll let me go. But there are people that, like, you know, that, that, uh, that a less uh, concerted but still RPG-like structure that, you know, maybe you finish that in 20 to 30 hours. Like, you know, not a nothing commitment, but a lesser commitment. Like, you can see that that definitely still has its fans. There are definitely still people that like those kinds of progression systems and those kinds of stories over a smaller, smaller period. Uh, but currently, like, we live in a period of blockbusters and big like go big or go bo go home with your budgets and like one of the inevitable things about making games especially but really most anything is that it's much harder to start making something than to keep making it and so a lot of these like there's so much sunk cost in when you start making a game, like you make all of the technology that uh, fits it into place, you make all of these uh, like models and tile sets and script, uh, like systems and scripting and all these setups. And then like filling it in is not trivial, but once you've already got the other shit in place, making stuff is relatively speaking much cheaper than if you start over again so you know make a big rpg lock people in make them play it longer is very much a make people feel like they got their money's worth is is a considered a key part of buy in and it kind of has been forever i mean i bought a lot of ps1 rpgs that bragged that they were 50 or 100 hours long <laughs> Yeah, that was definitely a marketing thing back then. Yeah, and we still kind of see that. It's just that we're also seeing it over the course of multiple games more often. But, you know, that's partly the buy-in and it's partly because, well, we got a lot of t we got a lot of tech and a lot of assets that we kept. 
see. Firefighter asks, Recruit as in the Japanese job finding company. I believe that's the same company, but I haven't looked too deep into them. Saw recruits ads all the time. They look like the Japanese Blastorm. Uh, the only thing I know about Recruit other than their name, which would seem to imply that they were a uh, company that was into uh, staffing would be that their uh, logo, at least at the time, was a seagull, which is why Marigold Management, the company they founded with Nintendo, was called that, because it had part of Mario's name as Nintendo's mascot and part of the name a seagull for recruits mascots. Uh, is it odd that Ubisoft and God of War took their series more RPG-like, where some games like FF16 stripped away theirs. Does the product meet in the middle eventually? I think we kind of already saw it meet in the middle eventually, and it was FF16, which they weren't shy about saying that their inspiration for a lot of its structure was God of War, and you can tell when you play it. Uh, like, we, we've seen the action games add in RPG elements to make them stickier, to make people play them longer, to make people feel more committed to them. And we've seen RPGs dial back the hardcore grognard elements to make them uh, more... To, to make them feel more approachable to casual players who might not want to deal with that. So we've kind of in some sense, we've seen them move past each other uh, to some greater or lesser extent. There are definitely action-adventure games, the games that would be marketed as action-adventure games with RPG elements that I would describe as much more of RPGs than FF16. Uh, oh. Let's see. Uh, smoking. <laughs> Joe popping into the chat just to say watch his wheels fall down a hole and laughs and then falls down the same hole. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> I the, uh, let's see. I watched it happen and I'm like, what a dumbass, and then I fucking did it. Let's see. Fireminer asks, am I the only one who thinks that FF16 would have benefited had the play time been cut by around 15 hours? I mean, I personally probably would have said to do that at least in part because a lot of its time that it's spending it's not using very well but it's one of those things like it's it's really hard on some level to market an rpg that's only 25 to 30 hours in this day and age so and again and you run into that like, indies indies will but not yeah big triple a developers who try to who try to or AAA publishers, I should say, who try to make it seem like every game they release is now your new forever game. Definitely don't want to uh, say, yeah, our game's uh, relatively short uh, compared to others in a genre. Uh, but yeah, like, I, I don't, like, I, I feel like the reasoning behind it was always that, like, FF16's structure is extremely modular feeling. Like, it's designed to be to have bits of it ripped out and put back in as, as the case uh, may require. And it definitely like for good and ill, that sort of is how it feels. Like there are definitely places where I could see uh, like not it, like it was designed, I should say it's designed to have p bits of it ripped out or placed in, 
without feeling like it was having huge places, uh, huge pieces ripped out or put back in. And go oh, don't like... shoot the zombies when they're not on fire. Okay. But uh, who's this big dude coming after me? I don't know. Nice. But fine. yeah, like the the general design, uh, like the way that main story quests in FF16 often don't really connect to major events very much feels like they were designed to be able to remove them if they had to. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that works the other way. There was definitely probably some quests that were added to make the game feel longer and weightier. Okay. Uh, Budai is asking, was FF7 the goal to chase back then in terms of like during the PS1? It definitely was the game that a lot of other Japanese RPGs suddenly wanted to be when it came out. Uh, I mean, not the first time that's happened, too, because I can think of a lot of games that obviously wanted to be Final Fantasy IV back in the day. Oh, definitely. It's, uh, and not even it's... back in the day, a couple of these are DS games that obviously still wanted to be Final Fantasy IV. Eh, don't knock it. Oh, yeah, yeah I mean... that was another uh, thing that I wanted to bring up just because it was of note. Uh, Fantasian is finally being freed from Apple Arcade Prison. Oh, sweet. Mm -hmm. For those yeah, who don't remember, that. Fantasian was the uh, the next, possibly last game uh, directed by Hironobu Sakaguchi. So uh, it's it was kind of a shame that it was uh, trapped on uh, phones behind a subscription service. So, but oh, it's been time. yeah, it's found it's found its way into the Steam database uh, back end. So. Presumably that'll be coming to Steam and probably every other platform sometime in the next year. Um, let's see. My miner's saying that FF16's emotional beats definitely don't hit as hard as the new God of War. It doesn't even hit as hard as FF15. Yeah, I could go into why I don't think that story works super well. Uh, I want to finish it before passing Final Judgment, but I'll be quick and say that uh, there is an obsession with making sure that the uh, plot fits together in a way that uh, doesn't require like any sort, doesn't require many major logical leaps in a way that like Final Fantasy games often have. That makes it feel like the plot was written more to be mechanically sound rather than emotionally resonant to me. But I'll get into that more when I've actually finished the game. Um, will there ever be another turn-based RPG made specifically for kids like Mystic Quest? Or have people found out that kids can play anything the genre can offer just fine as long as you don't crank up the difficulty? I would answer that uh, they will probably be... Well, yeah, there's Pokemon, but I was going to actually also say, uh, like, phone games based on uh, on children's uh, properties will probably still occasionally do this as well. Uh, just because it's it's a perfect storm of like, it's very convenient for phone games to be turn-based. Uh, if you intend them to be uh, longer than a single session. 
it's just convenient for them to be turn-based and uh children's properties tend to end up as phone games nowadays so that would be my bet for where you're going to see the last vestiges of that uh but in terms of like just an unlicensed property that's just like we're making a beginner rpg i don't think that's i don't, I don't think there's much uh specifically for children i don't see there's much call that's going to cause that Uh, Pokemon in some ways is still designed for entry-level players, but also has a hardcore element if desired. It's an interesting medium. Yeah, like, Pokemon has fully seeded that the idea the the hardcore element is just the the competitive part. And they, they try to sneak in, uh, you know, harder single-player content. Like, I think Scarlet and Violet have some of the better post-game content of the past few generations uh, as far as the vanilla games go. Uh, and the general structure of Scarlet and Violet definitely puts you in a lot more situations where you can just get absolutely, like, fucked up by something. Uh, but in, in general, you know, they're, they're, Pokemon is keenly aware that its truest and most loyal audience is eight-year-olds. And it's not parents dumb enough to try to... Yeah, parents of eight-year-olds definitely help as well. But, I mean... You got to make sure that that eight-year-old audience is well served. So, uh, let's see, when does a tried and true battle system like SF SMT need to be shaken up, or is it best to stick with what works? I mean, there are ways to shake things up while sticking with what works. Most mm. of the variants on the press turn system are kind of doing that. Because, uh, I mean, you look at something like the Persona combat system that is, is broadly similar from uh, 3 through 4 through 5, and that is a variation on the press turn. It is a shake-up. It's just a different kind. Like, to suit the needs of not recruiting demons and having at least three characters with you at all times whose movesets are basically static they shook up like you uh you know the the press turns ha were made less powerful in persona because you can't get uh because they basically don't want you to get just absolutely bodied because an enemy got like 12 turns because they kept exploiting one of your party members weaknesses until everyone was dead uh yeah <laughs> so that that simplification was them shaking it up and like I, I would say that you know it, it's also going to depend on like it would probably be more necessary to shake up SMT's system if we were still getting them at the rapid fire rate that we got on the PS2 and DS but it becomes less necessary just because we don't get that many of them anymore like we, we still get plenty relatively speaking there's still like you'll get Soul Hackers 2 and SMT5 in you know within like a year of each other which is still wildly more common than most but it's you know we're not at the point in like the late aughts where it's like we're getting like three or four spin-offs in the space of two years uh that can all kind of do their that essentially differentiated themselves both by tone but also by shaking up the combat system like that was the last time that we got an attempt at a at, you know 
the revival of the idea of what if Shin Megami Tensei was a strategy game? Like, that, that was a period where we had a lot of SMT games, so it made sense to have one of them go off wildly mm. in terms of structure while still maintaining elements of press turn that uh, grounded it as being in the same franchise. But, you know, you get... <laughs> there's there's less need to shake things up when you just don't do things as often. Uh, I'll Persona 4 remake at this point. I mean, if reload, if P3 reload does well, you'll probably see a P4 reshuffle. I don't know what they call it. Uh, they they drop the <laughs> they drop the gun. Uh, rerun would actually work because it's the TV yeah, thing. Yeah, because I mean it's mm. very TV focused. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking reshuffle because, like the they went with they went back to the tarot motif, but that's common to the series, so it was kind of a lame shot. But rerun, yeah, that could work. But yeah, I, I would suspect that it just kind of makes sense to do that if reload does well for them, and I fully suspect it does because, I mean, P4 was made on <laughs> P4 was made on the P3 technology. And it was a pretty rapid turnaround, relatively speaking, like two years. So, yeah, if if reload does well, I think we'll get reruns. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, I can play using characters I actually care about. I would like. Uh reload to do some significant rewriting to make that work. I doubt we'll see that, but it'd be nice. Um, is it an interesting case how FF4 and 5 differed uh, uh, core philosophies of building characters? It's honestly just how the series worked to that point. Uh, like, FF1 and FF2 don't resemble each other in any fashion in how character building works. And FF2 and FF3 don't resemble each other in any fashion either. And while FF... That's because they were made by completely different teams and philosophies. Yeah. But it, broadly speaking, uh, while one and three use the same vocabulary, the way their character progression systems work aren't that similar either. No. And then three and four, you know, completely different. Five is relatively speaking close to three, but it's such an overhaul that it's pretty huge. Uh, and, you know, six doesn't really resemble five uh, or four. Honestly, it doesn't really resemble any of the previous ones other than the amount of freedom in it. Most, like, resembling a weird chimera of four and two. Yeah. So honestly, I always saw the Final Fantasy games as like a struggle between, okay, how can we make these characters as individual as possible while also giving the player as much um, customization as possible? Yeah. And so I, differing... I, see six, I see six as a lead into seven just yeah. because the materia work, um, strongly resembles the Esper stuff. and Yeah, and materia is like also... a greater, it is, it's honestly six and seven. A breakdown of the system. Yeah, six and seven, as is often the case, actually yeah. resemble each other more than they do basically any games before or after. <laughs> and again, in six, you also start seeing. Um, it's, I mean, you start seeing individualized, um, like character-specific abilities in four, but six really does it. Really, really does mm -hmm. it. 
And then six also brings in the limit breaks. Yeah, and they're just not as explicitly called out. There, I mean, there's no real sense of how to how to uh, trigger them except to have a character be nearly dead. Yeah. So, um, but you can definitely see that their um, the desperation moves in six were very much the limit breaks of seven. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what was I going to say? But yeah, again, it? it's just like this pull between okay, how can we let the player do whatever they want with these characters, but also make each character feel very different in play. And I think six was an extreme experiment in doing this. Yeah. It's, because uh... on the, on the customization side, you could literally give every character, everything in, in magic, but mm-hmm. on the individual side, you had a very individual abilities that didn't really seem to work very well at times. Yeah. Not even counting the ones that could literally break the game. Mm-hmm break the game um, yeah we be careful with sketch um yeah what i was gonna say about I mean, it was okay yeah i mean things like uh, you needed to have a notebook handy to make sure you knew which of gao's um, monster skills actually did stuff or um, yep or the amount of time necessary to wait for for cyan to build up an ability so, I mean, I, I figured with Sign, what you needed was, like, um, yeah, you needed um, the Yeti and the Moogle with them, and just have them, and, and Gao, and just have three characters doing everything on autopilot while you're waiting for him to charge up stuff. Yeah, so you can see it once and then see that it doesn't actually, it's not actually particularly effective. <laughs> yeah. And then Sabin, it's based on fighting games. Yeah. I mean, the desperation attacks also heavily resemble a lot of fighting game super mechanics from the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm gonna say something about it. But yeah, uh, there's also the the method of character progression was sort of what they leaned into because at the time the the fundamentals of how combat worked didn't actually change that much from game to game. Mm-hmm. Uh, like from three to four, you get active time battle. And with four, they're very like there's a bunch of battles that have like additional timing elements just to emphasize that. Mm-hmm. But then afterwards, it's just like after four, they kind of fall out of love with doing that too much, other than like occasional like tutorial and gimmick fights, like the guard scorpion and seven. Uh, I was gonna say like the the gargoyles battle in five, where he had to kill the things at literally the same time. Yeah, but that was also an issue of it was honestly just more effective to use multi-targeting attacks. <laughs> Why use coin toss and just take them both out with a bit of cash? Mm-hmm. But yeah, one of those situations where uh, the it has kicked you from the session. Yeah, hold on. <laughs> Rude. Thanks. <laughs> But yeah, uh, it, it's one of those things. They sort of fall out of love with doing too terribly much with like uh, gimmicks revolving around uh, the the active time battle after four, other than very very occasional uses of it. And then, you know, they it just sort of hangs on as the, well, the technology doesn't really let us do that much more than this uh, up until 10 when they finally replace it. And then 
you get more interesting ideas done with active time battle after that, but not until uh, it's no longer the default. And that's when you start getting like 10, 2, and 13's weird takes on active time battle. Or uh, 12's, like, I think officially it was called active dimension battle. It's a really, really silly name. Uh, but yeah, you, you get weirder takes on it once it's no longer the default. Uh, and once the technology exists to support more like dynamic play structure, uh, yeah. All the combat in the last remnant. Uh, I don't remember if that system, what that system's name is, but that's also like a saga game in all but name. <laughs> Let's see, uh. But I ask, Persona 2 is a brilliant game, but how much more approachable was 3? Uh, it's... 3 has a much more regimented structure. Uh, 2 is a beautiful, brilliant game that is still, like, sort of 80% dungeon crawling. Like, a lot of great character moments, a lot of dialogue to be found if you go looking for it, because everyone has unique dialogue for basically every shop in the game. Uh, but, you know, 70% of your gameplay is still going to be just straight dungeon crawling, which I think is actually the biggest thing that holds back getting people to play Persona 2 uh, as, as an approachable game, because it's just like... And, and the other thing that makes Persona 2... Hmm? It's chunky. Little. It, it's yeah. It's a. There's a lot of it to be had. So. Yeah. The the other thing I would say about it is that uh, the thing that makes Persona Two difficult to approach is that the method of acquiring personas is just a huge pain in the ass. Uh, which isn't as much of a problem as it sounds like because uh, honestly. Frequently replacing your party's personas is not worth it in two. Uh, you could reasonably, and I have done this, get through basically the entire game and only using the personas you get as story events. Like, the starting personas can get you all the way to like more than halfway through the game, where if you went to the trouble of getting some uh, fairly easy to get alternate. Uh, optional items in the uh, one of the like climactic plot dungeons you'll get upgraded personas and you can just use those until like the end game ultimate personas so like the entire like system is just sort of bust it's weird and it's honestly easier to play if you just sort of ignore it <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you suspect Armored Core will borrow from some of From Software's recent work, or will it stay true to what it was? Uh, I think that FromSoft is keenly aware that they're that they don't need to make another game like Elden Ring that isn't just Elden Ring. Like they can just continue to make games in that style they don't have to turn armored core into that so i would suspect that the most that you're going to see of a souls game 
or an Elden Ring within Armored Core 6 is going to be a more nuanced level design philosophy. Because that's sort of what we've seen in the trailers. There's just more, like, level design going on. A lot of a lot of old Armored Core levels are just kind of... Here's a, here's a handful of structures uh, <laughs> to contextualize a mech fight. But, uh, I mean, if, if you go back to as far back as Armored Core 1, there's a lot of things that, like, if they called back to it, people would say, this is like a Souls game. And it's like, no, this is like Armored Core. This is like really old Armored Core. Like, uh, the weird structural element of Armored Core 1, where if you run out of money, uh, the game will actually... Uh, you, you will reach a game over state where, you, like, your body gets sold for medical experiments uh, <laughs> wow. that make you like a weird psychic. Call, uh, they're called like Human Plus. And you can keep doing that, and every time you do, you come back with like special abilities that you can't get any other way. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's a really strange structural concept of like, this game's really hard, and so it does have a way of easing difficulty on the player, but it revolves around dying over and over and like losing all your money and reaching fail states. And like, if you just put that system wholesale into Armored Core 6, people would say, oh, it's an interesting twist on the way that death is treated in the Souls games. And it's like, no, it's just an old, it's an old trick they've been using for a very long time. Uh, I think that's another thing that's going to be... Uh, to color the way that people interpret Armored Core 6 is that, like, the existence of From Software's current catalog is impossible to ignore. So design decisions are going to be interpreted interpreted in the light of they learned this from X or Y. And it's like, yeah, they learned it from all the things that have existed within the company's history because there's a strong, like, DNA that goes through a lot of their older stuff that's starting to flourish now. And... You know, it, it would honestly be as interesting to look back at, like, uh, you know, you look at something like a Demon Souls or, you know, some of the earlier heralds of their modern era and sort of look at, like, oh, this is what influenced them about their really old games, which is where you get, like, the insufferable pedants like me that start talking about Shadow Tower Abyss or whatever. <laughs> so... Uh, what are your feelings on the Front Mission series, and do the new remakes interest you? I like Front Mission. I should say that I've only ever really played a lot of Front Mission 3, but I love Front Mission 3. So overall, that means my feelings are positive. I've always, like, I've played a bit of Front Mission 1 before, and, like, always meant to play more. Haven't gotten around to it. Kind of want to snap up the Front Mission 1 physical release on Switch before it disappears into the ether. But, uh, well, wishes for horses, beggars would ride. Um, but I'm excited in part for Front Mission 2 Remake just because that's one of the few games that never got like a particularly like convenient fan translation. Like, there is a fan translation of Front Mission 2, but it requires you to consult uh, information external to the game itself because of issues with hacking that game. So the notion of a Front Mission 2 remake that like actually makes that game convenient and playable, it's worth a lot. Worth a lot. 
Why am I asking? You haven't tried five yet. I have it sitting on the deck, waiting to, waiting for when I uh, have more time to devote to a front mission project. Let's see. Fireminer saying, to be fair, the old Armored Core games are limited by the hardware. Oh, certainly. I wasn't I wasn't per se saying that uh, old Armored Core games didn't have ambitions of more complex level designs. There are more complex level designs within them that are limited by hardware. But it is one of those situations where we're going to see more complex level design that will take some influences from later games simply because those are the games they've made with more complex level design. Is there any PS2 game with higher fidelity than Gran Turismo 4? Depends upon what you mean by higher fidelity. Uh, there's stuff that's doing weirder things with the hardware that I personally find more interesting, but if you just wanted to say, like, what is the most realistic-looking PS2 game, it would probably be hard to say something other than Gran Turismo 4. Uh, to the point where if you ever actually sat through Sony's E3 2006 press conference, there's like 20 minutes of them badly up-resing uh, Gran Turismo 4 assets and putting them on a PS3. <laughs> and it's interminable. They're, the the up-resing job is so bad uh, that it retroactively makes the game look less impressive. Well, like it was such... It, hmm? Sorry. <laughs> oh god. It, no, I was just this, the game. All of a sudden there's like 10 <laughs> like fucking burning zombies behind me. <laughs> But yeah, like the, the uprising job on Gran Turismo HD, which uh, one other thing I want to point out about that game, if you go back and look at the E3 press conference, uh, 1920 by 1080p is part of that game's logo. It sucks. Um, <laughs> but uh, Gran Turismo HD is one of those situations where like, oh man, that is an all time like, these look great on PS2 because they are built to play to the PS2 hardware strength. And the second that you bad you uprise them onto the PS3, like all of the things, all of the tricks that were done to make it look good on PS2, just fall apart. They're not meant to be seen at that resolution. Man, that's just ill-conceived. Uh, if you haven't, if you want to see the PS2 doing weird-ass shit, though, if you haven't seen it, go look. There's a Digital Foundry retro video a few about a month back where they were talking about this PS2 game that was just an attempt to, like, put... Uh, like, they, they didn't do this for the final game. I forget what this fucking game is called. But uh, it's, it's a recent Digital Foundry retro video. It won't be hard to find. But it's a PS2 game where the final game just puts, like, hundreds, if not thousands, of enemies on screen because that was a big obsession of the mid-aughts. But for the E3 demo, they really wanted to show what their engine could do. So they made a special build of the game that put 65,000 enemies on screen. And huh. uh, the way that they did that is fascinating because uh, obviously you can't simulate that amount of even basic AI functions on a PS2 at that level. And so what they did was that outside of the radius around the player, all of the enemies turn into, are, are like within, as far as the PS2 hardware is concerned, they're, they're particle effects. And the PS2 has all sorts of weird like hardware functions to manipulate particles such that there's this like perfect storm of 
how they set up these this giant ass army and how they utilize the particle effect manipulation PS2 has to simulate the notion of there's 65,000 enemies on this battlefield and when you get close to them they turn into real enemies but when you get far away from them they're just particle effects as far as mm. the PS2's hardware is concerned it's fa it's fascinating it is a fascinating uh tech demonstration and no, it is not an EDF game. This is like a weird sort of Dynasty Warriors looking thing. It was made by Genki. Uh... Uh... Have any have any series ever hit it big, but the new approach robbed what you enjoyed of the series? Hmm. Hmm. I'm usually like when I run into this, like the issue is that I, I tend to try to be open-minded almost to a contrarian extent when something new comes out and people are like really dumping on like new directions. Cause I like, like weird new interpretations. Mm -hmm. uh, Budai says it, monster hunt uh, says that he expects wheels to say monster hunter world. Um, and... But I'm not sure that really counts as a new direction. Yeah, it doesn't count. It's it's not a new direction. I mean, they do different things, and it's an editor of series, but they do different ideas and different games. Like there's whole features in like Monster Hunter Generations, despite that being uh, literally like, greatest, hits, greatest hits that are only in that game. So, although you know Monster Hunter World didn't hit me big. Uh, they quickly followed it up with Rise, which did, so I don't know. Yeah, it didn't really re-divert re how the franchise functioned from that point. Uh, new directions I really didn't like. Uh, this is a tough one. I'm going to have to think about this. We might come back to that. Uh, I also asking, this might be a little bit of a niche question, but have you ever seen any BS shots of games that were clearly not in-game assets? I mean, all of us have at least once. Uh, yeah. Or at least um, like early assets that needed to be fixed up or were done in a specific mode that you could tell that it had been paused or something. Yeah, I remember, yeah. Um, I remember screen some of the first screens from like Obara Muramasa were like that, mm -hmm. where they were yeah. obviously in-game screens, but they had been like a special dev mode or something. Yeah, an early build that uh, doesn't have to worry about maintaining a frame rate. <laughs> yeah, that was the point. Yeah. But yeah, you you run into those a lot. I mean. As is probably clear, I've recently rewatched the Sony E3 2006 presentation because of that just got dumped in 1080p. Uh, so mm. you can see it with a great deal more clarity than the existing ones. And still one of the legit funniest things I've ever seen was for a game uh, that was summarily canceled without fanfare approximately a year later, but they showed a trailer for called Eight Days. Uh, that was supposedly in development from their uh, from Sony's London office, and if if you don't remember what this game this game, I, I challenge you to go look up that trailer and just have a laugh every time that this incredibly obviously pre-rendered trailer 
suddenly starts putting like a UI over it to make it look like it's something you can play. <laughs> it's extremely funny because it's like they're they're cutting all of this shit together that like obviously has to be happening in sequence or concurrently and it's impossible to tell how you would play it because it's all so chaotic but the band-aid fix they had for that was to just shop some ui elements on it. it's like here's a crosshair and a and some and an ammo loadout this is a game you can play and it's like this this oh is the boy. biggest fucking thing i've ever seen in my life uh, but yeah, eight days probably takes the cake for like this is that it was irresponsible to even pretend this was real. <laughs> Fight the boss. No. No, listen, we're in Hollywood's world. All right. Okay. And we're just fine. we're just guests here, man. Okay. Fine minor points out, remember Kill Zone Two. I feel bad for Guerrilla Games over Kill Zone Two. Because when they made that, it wasn't supposed to be shown to the public. Uh, it was an internal target uh, of like, we want our PS3 games to look like this. And then the head of Sony Europe was like, oh, you want me to show this to everyone? Yeah, I'll do that. That'll make the PS3 look good. Now and forever. Fuck Phil Harrison. <laughs> I want a new Killzone game now. Uh, they're but too busy. We, we, we won't 3. get one because then we only get Horizon games now. Yeah, well, that, I'm yeah. fine with that if they actually, you know, make a second Horizon game and not just the same game like over this? again. With the no, we're not doing this. <laughs> why are you the way that you are? Because that game pissed me off. That's why. Okay. And, yeah, as Firerunner points out, Killzone 2 is a good game. It does not need a lying trailer. And yeah, Phil Harrison. Uh, I noticed while I was watching that uh, the Sony E3 2006 that uh, all of the most egregious lies from that are all credited to Sony London. <laughs> and it's like, oh, so maybe you're just the big liar here because it's like, oh, there's that, there's that, the getaway game that absolutely never came out and doesn't look a, and doesn't look a fucking single thing like a PS3 game that would ever actually come out. Uh... God, what was there? There was another one. Uh, like, there's, there's like three or so games that are all like labeled as being from Sony Europe, and all of them are the fakest fucking games you've ever seen in your life. But yeah, uh, fuck Phil Harrison. Um, let's see. Fireminer asks, remember when Sirius Sam 4 was criticized for advertising around a thousand enemies and NPC on screen at the same time? The real game definitely couldn't do that. I I don't remember that. I remember a lot of complaints about Sirius Sam 4, but they were all filtered through a friend who loved the guy. He likes to complain. Uh, so I don't know what what uh, the what the Sirius Sam 4 uh, what what controversy surrounded that game. Uh, let's see. What do you think the approach to making What do you think the approach to making Shining Force spin-offs so unforce-like? Like, what do we think caused that? The answer was the the conventional wisdom at the time was that turn-based strategy games didn't sell. Thankfully, time has proven that that's wrong. Mm -hmm. But they never brought it back. 
Yeah, Sega has never really felt like a, a. At the very least, we are at the very least no longer pretending they're Shining Force. They don't put the name Shining Force on them anymore, like Shining Force Neo or Exa. Uh, they just do Shining Blank. And to be fair, Shining as an umbrella title has meant many things. Even before Shining Force, it was a first-person dungeon crawler, so... That I'm more accepting of. There's when a, they were calling it... Sh what? I was going to say, there's an emote in Remnant 2 called Praise the Gun. Of course there is. Doing, doing exactly what you think it's doing. Of course. But... As for why they called Shining Force Neo and Exa what they did, it was probably just a choice of, like, Shining Force is the strongest part of the Shining brand. Yes, and so. also they wanted to hurt me personally. I think it's more that they didn't <laughs> care if they hurt you. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, Shining Force, Neo, Exa, those are just sort of... Slaves to the brand. Uh, I think there was actually like one more Shining Force that we didn't get. That feather? was, yeah, Feather. That was actually a turn-based strategy game. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was a good one. But... Uh, according to uh, Mike Minky, it was good. Have you, you... I was gonna say I I sent James a copy. So. Oh, so then you... <laughs> that I'm would the be why. I'm the one who supplied him. That would be why I know it's good. <laughs> <No> supplier. <laughs> I never actually played it myself. I probably should at some point. If I can find another copy. What is this? Who is this? Hope this isn't Curse's blood. How responsible was Sony's mishap to the early PS3 days uh, to giving 360 a chance? Well, if you ask uh, people who were working at Microsoft... They didn't figure they could compete until around the time they heard that the PlayStation 3 was going to be $600. So, mm. uh, like, probably at least a good 60%. Oh, Farmer is asking how many copies Triangle Strategy sold. It was a good number. More it than was a million? More than a million. Then yeah, that number's probably gone up. Yeah, it's one of those things, like, I think that they consider it to be solid as long as uh, one of the Team Asano games sells more than, like, once they hit a million, it's like, well, that worked out well for us. Let me see. Yeah, 800,000 copies in its first two weeks, sold over a million copies within its first year. So yeah, well, a little over a million. It did fine. Like, especially for, uh, I'm sure that there was also the consideration of this game has absolutely no, uh, like, name cachet. It was just, we just released a new strategy RPG. So, yeah. Uh, as, as far as I can tell, it sold about a million units. Uh, bought it and never played it, lol, maybe sometime. Yeah, I bought it and still need to get around to it because Wheels seems to think it's very, very good. It's very good. Uh, I'm I trust, still I trust that. still stuck on a very hard mind battle, uh, but I like the design of it, and I like that it's hard. It's like uh, there's people that place bombs around it, and you have to simultaneously try and fight the enemies and also get to the bombs in time. It's pretty cool. 
I, I like I like strategy RPGs that give you these alternate con conditions you, know, you have to deal with instead of just every battle being go in, kill all the other people. That's it. <laughs> it was a mistake to go in this room. Did you just wander into a boss fight? I wandered into Good. something, and there's there's ghosts and shit. It's horrible. Okay. I thought triangle strategy was good. I played, I think, three or four hours of it, maybe. I liked it. Yeah. It's one of those ones I need to get around to. Fireminer says, wait a minute. We've talked definitely talked about whether people buy Fire Emblem for the gameplay of the characters, right? Like, just how many copies of triangle strategy sell. So that was, that was related to that question. And it's one of those things, like, certainly... Uh, the characters do a great deal to help it. It's also helped by the fact that Nintendo is very good at marketing the shit out of things, even if they're not doing having to do a huge ad spend. Uh, but uh, I think it's one of those situations where, like, a million people buying Triangle Strategy to some extent would uh, would imply that, like, there is an audience that just sort of buys strategy RPGs for the sake of playing strategy RPGs, even if, like, the characters don't have the broad appeal which isn't to say they're bad, they don't have the broad appeal of, like, a Fire Emblem, which are definitely designed to, uh, you know, to develop fandoms for the characters in specific and lure in the sort of person who might be intimidated by strategy RPGs in other contexts. Uh, brings us to something Budai just said, was Final Fantasy Tactics overrated? I don't think it's overrated. I do think... It's, just, it's been surpassed. Yeah. I'm not even sure, sh because, sh like, I, I don't even want to go that far. What I would say about Final Fantasy Tactics is that it successfully Trojan-horsed itself to people who would not have played a tactical RPG in other uh, in other contexts, as, as spin-offs tend to do. But that a lot of those people never fully understood what they liked about it, and never crossed over into playing other strategy RPGs. Mm -hmm. And, like, some of that's a, a failure of the existing strategy RPG market to pick up what brought people in. And some of that is just not doing it. Uh, I, I would even just say not doing so fast enough. Like, there's, there was a period probably in the early aughts where someone really could have capitalized on that. And to some extent, some people did, but not. I don't feel like to the extent they could have. I feel like there was a point to really break open that market, and uh, it like parts of it sort of got sealed over, and then we you know, finally see uh, Fire Emblem kind of crack it open again. Uh, if I remember asking, it's like the case with Baldur's Gate, how many people genuinely enjoy the computer RPG aspect and how many just want to install their romance mods and don't get me started on TES slash Fallout vanilla versus mods. The thing about it is that I would say that the argument is actually worse for uh, TES slash Fallout because the hardcore fans love modding the shit out of those, but... Mm -hmm. I would honestly say that, like, the simple majority of sales for, say, an Elder Scrolls game or a Fallout game at this point are on console. And, like, there's there's kind of mod support 
on consoles, it's very limited. It's very bare bones. Like, the the nature of the kind of person who installs mods is that they're customization obsessive. And that lends itself to strong fandom. And strong fandom is typically not what people are... What gets a game past 10 million sales. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's not just you, but I, I don't like modding games either, for the most part. In, in general, I don't do a lot of modding, uh, even in games where I can. It's just a case of, like, I want the game to sort of live and die by the decisions the developers made. Uh, and I don't I don't feel like uh, poking through the... Uh, kinds of things that a bunch of grognards made to like try to fix it ex post facto that often have <laughs> fixing quotation marks. Yeah, yeah, we're we're just put big ol' air quotes over that, quote unquote, fix it ex post facto to try to uh, in, in ways that often uh, fully laser in on one very specific aspect of how the game functions and don't have a great sense of holistic design like i was thinking i was thinking a lot about like uh trying to armchair fix what uh issues that i've been having with the ff4 remake because i've been uh, the ds one because i've been playing that and like my biggest issue with it is that it's really goddamn slow uh like it's it's just a super slow game and but it kind of has to be because the decision was made that it was going to be a 3d game uh what you don't play your fan retranslate ff don't get me started on that fire miner jesus christ you love my um moving on uh but what i was thinking while playing ff4 ds was that like they'd made the decision that it needed to be in 3d and that it was going to reuse the engine from FF3. It also internalized criticisms of the FF3 remake, that the nature of the engine, uh, that like they had limited the amount of enemies that could be on screen, that it had, it had sort of limited how the game could function. So they huffed and they puffed and they tried their damnedest, and they made it so that the game can have six enemies on screen, and a party of five, and it runs like dog shit, and it's super slow because it kind of just has to work within the limits of the system that it has. And it isn't FF4's best advantage to be that slow. It, it doesn't work. And so I was thinking, like, well, if we have to assume that that's how the combat has to work, like if we're we're assuming that like they they aren't gonna make it so that you have fewer enemies on screen, they aren't gonna make it two D. They're not gonna do anything like that. It has to reuse the uh, FF three engine and it has to respond to those criticisms. And it's like, well, what if you had uh, fewer enemies uh, or fewer random encounters in general to de-emphasize how slow the encounters themselves are? And then that runs into well, then the leveling curve is fucked then you need to rebalance the leveling curve. And that runs into just all sorts of like cascade issues. And this is sort of how I feel whenever I see like fan mods to get this back to the rambling point I was making. 
is that a lot of fan mods will fix like one or two things that the modder has like a particular bugbear about. And that makes them happy. And that's fine. That's good. They should play the game the way they want to. But it produces a game that is fucked in some other fashion. <laughs> and it's just like, I'd rather just play the game they made. Uh... I'm just going to say, um, I like visual mods that like enhance graphics and stuff but i i don't like to change the gameplay too much um at least until after i be in it as it's meant to be played you know mm -hmm. so i've played through skyrim and fallout 4 as they're meant to be played and now i now i do whatever i want in those games after i've beaten them you know mm -hmm. so, but beyond that if it's if i'm playing for the first time i might only just do graphics mods yeah, I don't. I don't even do those. Mostly because whenever I see them, like I can, I can always end up seeing the spots where it's like, okay, you put a lot of attention into this, and then this other thing you didn't care that much about, and so it either wasn't altered or was altered poorly. <laughs> so, uh, it's it's very it's it's down to taste. As a matter of personal taste, I'm not huge on mods. I don't terribly care, and that's that's one of the reasons like. There's a chicken or egg scenario there where, like, I didn't grow up a PC gamer. This was never a priority for me because it didn't exist to me. And now we're we're way removed from, like, the height of, like, modder culture. Like, there's still plenty of people modding uh, plenty of new games. But it's it's sort of, like, gotten down to the handful of games you can mod, get tons of mods, and then everything else just sort of is, like, eh, it might be some minor fan patches to try to fix... Uh, things that particularly pissed off some people. Uh, but, like, you know, we, we're far past the age of the, the grand total conversion mods. You want Resident Evil 2 Remake to play X gonna give it to you when X is trying to give it to you? There's yeah. your option. Don't you want to turn Mr. X into Thomas the Train Engine? Thomas the no. Tank Engine. Beloved. <laughs> I, I did see a mod that had, like, um, Resident Evil 7 with all the characters from The Simpsons. <laughs> That's a nightmare. It's awesome. They're all sitting at the dinner table. It's Homer, Marge, Bart. <laughs> yeah. Mm, donuts. Yeah, let me quickly... Since Fireminer is now asking how many questions we still have in the Discord, let's uh, go... Uh, check on that since we definitely have some. Okay, podcasts. Okay, we definitely did that. Definitely did that. Freelance artists snuck in anti-Christian and anti-Semitic symbols into X-Men. I don't know about this. I'm kind of happy for that. Has there been any game unfortunate enough to be subjected to the same treatment and how much of it was deliberate sabotage and how much was just artists trying to blow off some steam like animators sneaking shit into Disney movies? <sighs> I mean, I've I definitely... I can't think of any specific examples, so... I, I can know. think of something that wasn't 
like racist or sexist or anything it would or like there was there was a developer on like simcopter i forget uh, there was like a very specific thing he was protesting internal to ea's culture i think but basically there's like a specific uh There was like a specific, like, Easter egg, quote unquote. I forget what the note, what the intention behind this was. But so Simcopter is like a 1996 one of the Sim games that you, you, your dad's computer might have had. Uh, but yeah, so you sort of flew around a Sim City in a helicopter. But on certain days, uh, you would it, it, all of the male characters would be in swim trunks and would kiss each other. Okay. So that was uh, quite something to have in a released video game in 1996. Uh, as I, I'm trying to recall, like. People have gotten in touch with the designer who did this. Uh, yeah, he, according to according to his statements at the time, he was inspired by heterosexism he saw on the development team, uh, saying that most of the characters in the game were uh, sort of dumpy, ugly dudes and sexy ladies. Noted that scantily clad women weren't considered objectionable, objectionable in the game, so he added scantily clad men with a with an a similar an attempt at a similar level of sexiness. Uh, so yeah, that's the that's the first thing I can think of where someone snuck something into the game specifically to piss off a publisher. So oh, good job, Pew. Thank you. Um, Pew just banned a bot. Um, I saw. Thank you, Pew. But yeah, uh, that, that's the thing I can think of off the top of my head, where it's like someone snuck something into the game, into a game with a specific message that developers were not aware of. Uh, that's the one that sticks out because like the message was not horrendous, so I guess my brain would rather remember that <laughs> rather than people sneaking in like racism. But, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, for the most part, Easter eggs are supposed to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's also just, it's it's hard. Like, it, it's become harder and harder to do this sort of thing, just because, like, when you're one person in a thousand, you just don't have enough authority over the, <laughs> over the game to be able to sneak anything like that in. Oh, but mm -hmm. we got our asses handed to us. Good I ask, where does Dark Souls go from here? More Elden Ring? The formula is good, but maybe could get stale. I mean, they're, they've cooled off on the speed at which they're releasing them, so I don't think that they're going to run into that issue for a while. Especially because Elden Ring brought in so many new people. I wouldn't Elden be Ring is basically Demon's Souls 7 at this point, right? Yeah. But... It's much easier to sell something that doesn't have a big number after it. 
Uh, yeah, so are we going to get Elden Ring 2 or Dark Souls 4? I don't think they're doing another Dark Souls. They've been pretty emphatic that, like, Dark Souls is probably gone at this stage. And I don't see that there's, like, okay. a particular reason for them to limit themselves to the world of Dark Souls again. Angelic Hearts? That sounds like a, that sounds like a dating sim. I, I know it does. Is so it... can you imagine them doing a dating sim version of Dark Souls? Hmm. No one would see You know, I've seen, I've, I've seen enough people thirsting after random Dark Souls NPCs that I think they could probably sell it. Yes. But yeah, my, my, my guess would be uh, potentially mixing up the setting. Uh, would be uh, would be an option, uh, you know. You've got dark fantasy, you know, especially during that time was experiencing a pretty big moment. But there's a lot of other options that I think could potentially uh, see success. Uh, see also as as I've brought up occasionally, like there's Shadow Tower Abyss had a lot of modernistic elements that uh, from games in the current style haven't really touched that I think you could maybe uh, produce something interesting out of. Uh, Fireminer asks, Kingsfield, when? Uh, I fully think it would be fascinating to just put out a game that was true to the style, tone, and speed of Kingsfield and just watch people be consternated by it. <laughs> Because while Kingsfield definitely has a stylistic uh, predecessor nature to the Souls games, you're still running into the fact that it's a very slow-paced dungeon crawl that uh, definitely owes as much to, uh, you know, wizardry as anything. <laughs> so, uh, I, I'd pay to see it. I would pay to see it just to see people respond to it like mm -hmm. but there, there's also a part of me that like can't really let go of how like the first three kingsfield games are all extremely like ps1 games in ways that are like informed by the tech of them and i kind of love that they look like that and no current game would ever look like that again <laughs> so i don't know I, I wouldn't be super in love with what that would probably end up actually looking like, but I would pay to see people respond to it. <laughs> okay, to hit another one from the Discord. Are the games... Oh, this, this uh, question made more sense before something just came out, I think, because I think it's doing pretty well at the box office. Are the games now the most valuable section of the TMNT franchise? It's just how bad the recent movies and TV shows have screwed up. Oh, they haven't been bad. They just what? haven't been successful. Uh, uh, I, don't, I, don't risk... want, I don't like the recent shows, plural, in that statement. Because none of them you have might, been bad. They're all very good. You might have just caused Wheels to do a Pistols at Dawn moment. Oh. Um, You're going to set yeah, them off. Watch out. Does it face the risk of a growing audience? Because I don't think these shows have been picking up new fans. I think the 2012 one definitely picked up new fans. Yeah. Uh, I think Rise probably could have if they had 
been a little more confident in it. Yeah. Uh, but I think Mutant Mayhem will probably... Is that what it's called? Yeah. I think that'll probably do pretty well. Like, that seems like it's getting real positive buzz. Any kind of, like, animated or film on, uh, based on The Last Ronin? That would be cool. I think that's... There's a game that's coming for that. Okay. I don't think... Listen, Last Ronin is cool. I don't think for most fans that that would do anything for anyone. Oh, The Last Ronin is definitely for turtles' graybeards. Yeah. <laughs> and that's fine, because that's that's us. It's It's the thing in the... It's for the part of the audience that grew up with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and would want that kind of story. Mm -hmm. It's not for the, the new kids that something like Mutant Mayhem is for. Or Rise of the TMNT, even though those, you know, both of those are perfectly fine for adults. They're well, they're as well-made kids properties tend to end up being, like, adults can certainly enjoy those. But, like, those are four kids, the last round, and it's definitely, like, it's like Eastman and Laird getting back together for once in their goddamn lives, so... Uh, it's very much a case of uh, Last Ronin is uh, it's it's not for the kids. It's that's for the graying audience. But I I think that it's also just sort of one of those things that like even if a particular uh, interpretation doesn't connect with kids, it's a really malleable property. <laughs> And like it's had it's had dormant spells in the past, uh, the mid '90s to early aughts before the '03 show. Not a great time for the brand. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when you're getting things like Next Mutation. Don't watch that. Uh, and then you know, uh, the it just sort of it tends to go in like five to six years you know long enough for a new generation of kids like they get their own version of the ninja turtles and i think that's beautiful uh mm -hmm. but definitely i think like i think the 2012 show like that ran for like six seasons right yeah yeah like that's that's a real healthy run for children's series if you look around uh, it's also pretty beloved yeah i think the uh, also, Joe says that his Steam Deck ran out of juice. Oh. Uh, had to quit. But I also rip. don't think we're going to beat that boss tonight. <laughs> Not with that attitude. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things that, like, uh, I'm always, like, leery of how much that I think like a new interpretation of like a property from when I was a kid is doing because it's just one of those situations where it's like I'm not the target audience and I don't know how it's playing to its actual target audience uh, I can only ever find that through like tertiary uh, information like oh they kept renewing it it must have been selling to someone oh they made more of these they must be selling to someone like that's that's kind of it and so you know you get a 2012 uh, children's series that runs for six seasons, I'd say, that, yeah, that probably did pretty well. Uh, Rise of the TMNT, sadly, doesn't seem like it did super well, although I think that might have been outsized expectations for it. Mm. Uh, yeah. Like, because broadcast TV just doesn't do well. <laughs> like, the, the, we are past the age where broadcast TV is how things do well. Uh, 
I want is just more and more Shredder's Revenge. That's it. Just keep well, doing Enjoy that DLC. Uh, all I want <laughs> is a Shredder's Revenge game and not based on the original cartoon. What if it was happen. all? What if it was based on all the cartoons? That would be cool. I'm just sick of video Total games verse. based on the original cartoons. Like that, like those games, like Shredder's Revenge. Certainly, they want to sell that to kids, but that was not a game. That was a game made for people who had grown up with a significantly older iteration of the Turtles. Uh, yeah. Like that was, that was like similar to that like last Ronin concept, like, if that ends up coming out, like, that's, you know, the, I, I would honestly say that of the parts of the franchise, the part that is the least healthy with children is the games. Like, there should have been, I'm not, I'm not aware of such a thing, but there should have been a Rise of the TMNT game, and I don't think there ever was. Uh, uh, nope. And and, uh... That feels like a tremendous tremendous uh failure like the there's some there's some really neat games based off of the 2012 one there's that mm -hmm. one that's a metroidvania that's really cool i love that game yeah but you know the, like it honestly feels like the the notion of tmnt games like i i can think of within the last 10 years like the vast majority of TMNT games have been aimed at the older audience. Like that's, I would say, the point, the place where the brand is the most focused on the the aging audience. Like there's a there's that PS3 and 360 game. Uh, I think it was called like TMNT Out of the Shadows. It was not based on the movie Out of the Shadows. It predates that by a couple years, but that was very much for you know older. Uh, Turtles fans, there was uh, the Platinum game that very much sort of felt like it was kind of aiming itself at the older fans. Like, the games have very much become, here's one for the old heads. And I, I think that that's kind of a, that's leaving money on the table, I think. Also, some of us uh, old heads are bored of the things you're aiming at. There's so much Turtles! Stop modeling it after one fucking cartoon. Bales is very resentful of the amount of attention that the 80s cartoon gets. I am, because it's but... the worst cartoon out of the whole, in the whole franchise. It does not age well. It sucks. It's, it's, it's the least of all these cartoons. It also has the least involvement from the Turtles creators. Yeah. It's, it's not good. But, yeah. But, yeah, I think, I think, you know, I, I, I want to see that last Ronin game because I think that conceptually that's a really cool idea. I really like the ideas going into the last Ronin and how it's sort of paying homage to, you know, essentially the kinds of stories that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was always originally parodying. Like the, the earliest ones are parodies of underground comics from like the late 70s and early 80s. And you get to this new one and it's like yeah this is sort of like paying into like the kinds of things that influence those as well as the modern indie comics and you get while still paying tribute to what Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was so like a last Ronin game if that actually comes out I hope that's good because that's a really cool idea mm -hmm. uh, remember the out of the shell live action TMNT concert god I wish I could forget I saw there I, I 
a few years back, me and some friends watched the hellish thing that was the uh, TMNT out of their shells on Oprah thing. Oh, God. I think it was Oprah. It was on some... Yeah, yeah. From, like, 1990, and... You get a mutagen, and you get some mutagen. No, it's way more uncomfortable than that. It's it's so much more uncomfortable than that. That is a thing where they like interview uh, April O'Neil and all the turtles, and it's really uncomfortable to be watching an episode of Oprah where she's interviewing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and at least one of them is unsubtly implying that they're all fucking April. Oh, that's gross. It's really, Boy. really weird. <laughs> Really weird, deeply uncomfortable. Don't watch that. I'm sorry I cursed you all with remembering that that happened. I did not know this ever happened. I'm only half paying attention to you anyway. But Good April choice. was with Casey Jones. Everybody knows that. Don't, don't think about it. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty sure she actually ends up with Don Tillo in the 2012 show. I could have sworn that he was like a, he was like a creepy stalker in that one. Did they eventually reconcile? Yeah. Okay. Uh, how the hell did the original TMNT TV show uh, get popular anyway? What kind of particular itch kids had at the time that TMNT scratched? Uh, ninjas. They had ninjas. Yes. They had ninjas. They were uh, identifiable, very archetypal. Also, uh, compared to a lot of the shows at the time, it was actually good. It's actually... It's like, like it is, it, it actually had some sort of centralized plot, which was very rare yeah. for a lot of TV shows at the time. Like, yeah. you have to look at it in the context of, like, 1987 when it debuted, where its competition is, like, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. G.I. <laughs> yeah. Joe. Yeah. Yeah, like, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's very low-quality stuff. And so, you know, and, you know, just, they're strong character designs. Like it's it's fun. They're fun. Like the con one of the things that's fascinating when you go back and look at late eighties and early nineties media is other children's show like children's shows like parodying Ninja Turtles and like trying to make jokes about how stupid it is. And made by writers who clearly didn't watch it and clearly didn't really understand why kids liked it and were kind of irritated by it. Oh, but... Samurai Pizza Cats. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even thinking of that. I'm remembering uh, the Tiny Toons. I'm remembering the Tiny Toons. No, no, I'm not talking about when people ripped it off. I mean when they were parodying it, like Tiny Toons, uh, yeah. immature radioactive samurai slugs. And like the entire... Oh, I do like, remember that. <laughs> and the entire premise of the sketch is that like Plucky is insane for liking this. Like the entire joke is this is stupid. And it's just like, yeah, TMNT knows it's stupid. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like it that is, that is yeah, it, it it's fully aware of its own absurdity and decides to have fun anyway. Mm -hmm. It's like whenever you see like someone try to parody Dragon Ball and it's like, Dragon Ball's stupid. And it's like, yeah, Dragon Ball fucking knows it's stupid. Yeah. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever actually watched the show? It's it has a things. very good sense of humor. About itself. Turns out it's mostly jokes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just one of those situations where it's like, 
you, you you run into this situation where like someone sees like someone outside of the target audience or something sees something says oh that's stupid and can't conceive of the idea that like the people mm. wa consuming and producing it are aware that on its face the idea is stupid and are putting in the effort to make something as good as they can anyway <laughs> It reminds me of like a review I saw for like Detective Pikachu, where it was blasting the last act of the movie. And like, dude, have you never seen a Pokemon movie before? This is not only par for the course; it's actually fairly well done. Uh, okay, sorry, I just that, remember that. That movie's yeah, really no, good. no worries. <laughs> Loves that movie. Yeah. it's like, yeah. I mean, the person who wrote this review has obviously never seen an actual Pokemon movie. <laughs> Having a, a late act. Switch around where suddenly we're not sure exactly what genre of movie we're watching is normal. <laughs> That's Pokemon, baby. It's like I remember Pokemon movie in theaters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember. Um, what was it? The one that introduced Darkrai, and like I watched this thing in Japanese, and among the random things I could actually understand from the dialogue, Book of Prophecies and Space Time Disjunction were not the words I was expecting to recognize, but I did. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Uh, something else I, I need to bring up in the comments because it's unfortunate serendipity. Mm -hmm. Fireminer asks, remember the MC Hammer animated show? <laughs> yes. Vaguely. Why did you have to remind me just now? Uh, okay. Because I posted about it in Wheels' Discord like a day ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I am that kind of oh, yes. He also asks, did Michael Bay understand how stupid is Team NT? I think yeah, he was I mean, aware. Michael... <laughs> yeah. Like, he... um, do you ever watch um, Epic Rap Battles of History? Oh god, I have seen that, yeah. Yeah, so the one with all the movie directors. Mm. And um, Michael Bay's verse is based, I mean, first of all, he rhymes money with itself 17 times. But his best line is basically, don't need to um, don't have time to read reviews while you're working on the sequel. Respect. And it's like it's it's his entire production philosophy is like you just make it. You keep making it. You make what sells, and you don't care what everyone else is saying. I mean, the, the thing comes, to this comes after every other person in the rap has already had at least one line dissing him <laughs> while talking to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the, th the thing they I would mean... say. I was, I was going to say, I mean, they they hired Will Arnett for that movie. They they understand. Yeah, the thing I the thing I have to think about with those is that like there's a when I think about it, it's like I feel like there's a tendency to look back at those as being particularly poorly received, and it's like I what? you know for as part of as part of. Uh, as part of the marketing for Mutant Mayhem, they've been contrasting all of the, uh, you know, Rotten Tomatoes scores for all of the prior TMNT movies because, you know, by that metric, Mutant Mayhem is the only one that's been positively received. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. I think it was at like 98% or something at the time that they were doing this ad. But it was one of those situations where it's like, yeah, no, critics never liked these. They've never at any point liked it. I don't think they even liked the first live-action one, which is actually... They don't. It was at, like, 48%. Yeah, which is actually quite good if you go back and watch that. They didn't like the 2007 CG one, which I think is tremendously also very underrated. Good. Yes. 
like that's a that's actually a legit like a very good film uh but you know like cr- critics did not like that film <laughs> no uh, they, they've never liked any of these yeah. like they're it's it's not really a thing that you make for critics like it, it's good that like mutant mayhem is finding success in that like i think there's room to make things that can be critically successful but it's not your primary no. like yardstick for this uh, no, i mean like those last two live action movies were not horrible they were fine mm-hmm. anyway and uh and um Bebop and Rocksteady in the second live action movie were actually a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I liked the original cartoon. It had awesome villains. I'm just saying. For the time. Yeah. yeah. Like, at you least mean, compared it, it, to G.I. Joe and, and yeah. yeah, that's why it was popular, but yeah, my my complaint is Wheels just wants to see things based on like the O three or the, the shows that are right. legit good. <laughs> And the not, ones that not hold just, up better. Right. That are not just pulling on nostalgia. Right. That okay. aren't just good for the time. Yeah. Fair enough. See. Like, the design of the characters and stuff in the original cartoons are great, and they made for great toys, but if you actually go back and try and watch the cartoon nowadays, it's just like, wow, this blows. <laughs> it's iconic. Yeah. It's it's got, it's got some good episodes, I think, that especially, like, the, the first five that are essentially a pilot movie those are particularly good after that they get real ropey it, as it, cartoons of that era did yeah it it, it kind of lost its way well yeah um, in, after the first especially after the first season but yeah i um, mean like you know you're you're looking at like there's a couple of seasons like that's that series has like 200 episodes uh one season officially is that five episode pilot then there's an order of like 70 episodes then there's another order of like 40 episodes and then another order that size. And then there's like four more seasons that are all 10 episodes each because that like the way cartoons were produced at that time is insane. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But like, you know, under those circumstances, like making even as good of a product as they made was near impossible. Uh, but yeah. Um so are all the racist Transformers an intentional joke at the expense of the IP or is it part of the Bay package? It's one of those things like, man, I don't know <sighs> enough of, to really get into that uh, thing other than to say, like, there's Very a lot of things that pray. To actually yeah. try and be relevant to something. Yeah, there's a lot of... Wasn't that second Transformers movie also during a writer's strike? It was a writer's strike film. It yeah. was a writer's strike yeah. film. And it shows. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Uh, Budai asks, manuals were cool, I'll admit, but do you think gamers complain about the lack of them too much? They're, they're definitely something that I enjoy the physicality of flipping through, but they they don't really, like, yeah. they, in the scheme of things, they don't mean that much to me. Hey, <laughs> Unless I... it's something like Nino Kuni's book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, if I got to have a good manual, make it a really good manual. I got a printed manual with my physical copy of Tunic and then realized that, well, this is kind of spoilery. I should not actually look at this. That's the whole point of the game. You yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. The whole point is... Oh, wow. It's like, this is cool, but I should not look at this yet. I do still think it's extremely funny that uh, Switch games have a little spot 
to hold a manual that yes. almost none of them actually use. It's usually used <laughs> for advertisement inserts. Yeah. yeah. Although I will say that I've been appreciating. I got uh, I got my hands on uh, the uh, Switch version of Trails of Cold Steel Three. Thank you, friend of the podcast, Beat. Uh, but I do appreciate them sort of using that for like, hey, here's character art. Like, it's nice to see some of these. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Also, this weird lenticular thing. Don't know what's going on with that, but it's cute. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I just need to pick up Cold Steel Four so that I can just blitz through the rest of those. Um, okay, one more. Am I the only one to think that Pokemon Fever was a consequence of the hype for those collectibles th that came before it? Like, without Pogs or Beanie Babies, the public would have been less primed for the merchandise mania born out of Pokemon. I mean, there also would have just been less merchandise for Pokemon if, the, if there wasn't a mania for it at the time. It's certainly like, you know, every everything is a product of its time. Uh, Pokemania definitely had a... Uh, a strong sense of collectible speculation that drove it into the uh, news headlines at the time. Uh, you could never, could never convince me otherwise. But you know, it was what was in the air at the time. Our uh, our collectibles nowadays are less individual franchise focused and more mega collectible uh, umbrellas that uh, produce soulless plastic husks. <laughs> uh, how important was the 80s Japanese economy to video games? Well, it sure produced a lot of them. <laughs> you, need, uh, you need that kind of cash free-flowing to get as many of the classic companies into the uh, business as end up happening. So, you know, uh, I'll put it this way. I don't think I can imagine what the landscape of gaming would be right now if there wasn't a Japanese bubble economy to feed off of at, at the time when a lot of the big players were getting established. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Galapagos effect, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to find one question from the big list so that we do not break our New Year's resolution, which is still going strong into August, outlasting the vast majority of New Year's resolutions. <laughs> mm -hmm. See, we're going to go for something simple. Um... I feel like this... Uh... The wording of this question may raise wheels as hackles, but it's a simple and interesting enough question that I oh think boy. Uh, What are examples of developers that lost a part of their identity along the way, i.e. Bungie after the exodus, id Software and Romero parting ways, EA after Trip Hawkins left? When did Bungie lose its identity? I think the argument is that uh, around the time that they lost a bunch of people right around Destiny 1, like throwing off their 
a long time hand of a composer. Oh, um, I mean, I don't think they really lost their identity, to be honest. But you can understand the notion of yeah. this. Understandable. Uh, how about uh, Rare? That's a yeah, one. the loss of the loss yeah. of the Stampers and a lot of their uh, upper level talent post the Microsoft buyout really stamped out a lot from them. Um, okay, I'm going to go a little older school here. Sierra Online. Oh, which one in particular? Because there's a bunch of like yeah. names that leave there and their franchises die afterwards. I mean, take your pick at this point. Yeah. Um, but like. Um, I was gonna say the the jump from Quest for Glory four to Quest for Glory five shows that something changed at that company. Yeah, that's a rough one. Yeah, and the fact that the um, the the fact that the uh, what the, whatever the names were the the couple that created Quest for Glory had to sue to get the rights back to their franchise to make a sequel. Yeah. I have no idea what went into that, but the fact that in the Hall of Heroes in Hero University, their lawyer and their lawyer's dog have prominent places of honor in the statues. It fucking reminds me of Nintendo giving the guy who defended them in the Universal lawsuits the rights to the name of Donkey Kong as it related to yachts. <laughs> really? Yeah. So the guy can name, legally name his yacht Donkey Kong. Yeah. Or could. He he passed away a few years back. But... Very specific. Yeah. They were they were very pleased that he had uh, successfully not only proved that Donkey Kong was not legally infringing, but that Universal had argued in bad faith, having previously proven that King Kong was not actually under copyright. <laughs> Yeah, John Kirby. Uh, there is a long-standing, unconfirmed rumor that Kirby is also named for him. But, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he also, he, uh, before that, had quite a quite a career as well. Uh, he was a. Uh, he was one of the people that was set up, uh, that was essentially doing research to essentially get Congress to, you know, start working on the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Oh. So, John Kirby got, got a pretty sterling career, not going to lie. <laughs> oh. But, yeah. Uh... Yeah. Uh... About it though. Uh, companies that sort of lost their way uh, with any sort of clear demarcation line. What was that? Oh, just going back to the question that we had had uh, the uh, companies that sort of lost parts of their identity uh, after like certain key figures left. Like, there's definitely ones that, like, the company went in a noticeably different direction. Uh, 
and like I'm not even sure if I would say that's for good or ill, but it was definitely different afterwards because like you get post uh, post spirits within post Sakaguchi Square is a very different company uh, for good and ill than it was beforehand. Uh, and you know, there's there's a lot of the these kinds of things because you know that's uh that's game development for you, but. I'm trying to think of companies that really feel like they lost something truly key with that sort of departure. Yeah, that's uh you know, it's it's a it's a reminder of how much you know that games are collab collaborative. Uh, I'm sure that there's going to be uh, arguments about, say, uh, Ryuga Gotoku Studios' uh, productions post uh, the departure of Toshihiro Nagoshi, uh, but. It's one of those things like that's a chapter yet to be written since uh, we still have not seen a game release that he wouldn't have at least been there for the conception stage of. Uh, probably, I would guess that the first thing we'll see that he couldn't have had any meaningful hand in uh, would be whatever comes after, whatever Like a Dragon 9 is called. Uh, I would suspect that that will be the uh, first one where someone could de definitively point to it and say the timeline does not make sense for him to have had any hand in this. Uh, but yeah. Uh, Think, uh, I mean, there's there's some obvious ones. You can sort of see various franchises of Konami's die on the vine after their stewards leave the company. <laughs> That's really sad. Uh, I think, uh, you know, underappreciated beneath all of the... Uh, all beneath, uh, you know, presaging all of these before, like, Kojima or Igarashi... Uh, you've got, uh, the, uh, Suikoden, uh, director, uh, Yoshitaka Murayama, who, uh, is there through Suikoden 3, and I think, on some level, they were desperately, desperately hoping that it would be possible to get him back at some stage. Because Suikoden 3 is the last time that that franchise ever moves forward in the timeline. <laughs> uh, Suikoden 4 jumped backward several hundred years. Suikoden 5 builds itself around like a fairly offhandedly mentioned conflict that's brought up in Suikoden 2. And then Tear Crease and Woven Web of a Century are both complete alternate universe bullshit. Uh, and so all of the forward momentum of that franchise stops the second that he's gone. 
because I think the the people working on those games were hoping that they could get him back. Not so much. Not so much. But hey, uh, we're we're getting Aiden Chronicles, so I'll call it, I'll call it a wash. Uh, yeah, uh, those would be some ones that I could think of where it's like this was definitely not the same afterwards. Whether it was good or bad, it was definitely no longer the same. I think that we should probably close out because I'm tired. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Wheels is tired. And it is getting quite late, so. In this time, I would like to know more about princesses. Well, obviously, last month's uh, crowdfunder experiment did not finish as we might have liked, but we still have plenty of princesses out there to experience. Mm -hmm. So, Princesses of the Pizza Parlor on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. Um, if you enjoy tabletop role-playing games, if you enjoy watching other people play them, and this is an entire thing in many different places of the internet these days, <laughs> um, if you don't mind having this in a narrative format available for ebook or Dead Tree, then again, Princesses of the Pizza Parlor by Michael Yarimizu, Y-A-R-I-M-I-Z-U for Google purposes, uh, um, for your view, for your reading pleasure. Um, I would like to thank whoever is out there currently reading through it on Kindle Unlimited to the tune of about 700 pages in the last week and a half. Wow. I'm very impressed. Um, waiting to see if they can get through episode nine and get to the paralogue which is really long <laughs> so but um oh they have uh they've picked up again yay okay so yeah i, I do get updates for pages read so it's like okay we have um let's see 72 pages read so far this week or since the first so okay. we're doing good yeah i mean over 700 last month yeah, which, so yeah. still keeping a good pace yeah and almost all by the same person, I am assuming, because they've been going in sequence. Yeah, it gives the gives the impression. Yeah, so it's a, it's a nice feeling, even if it's like literally pennies on the dollar, for me. Um, it's just good to be noticed. Yeah, it is. So, but yes, princesses of the pizza parlor available on an internet near you. And um, oh yeah, I need to actually finish up the editing for episode uh, episode twelve. <laughs> I'll, I'll be getting to that in, for next month. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Hmm. Uh, 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 Joe, are you still here? Joe I'm is here. not still. Oh, there you are. <laughs> I am here. Sorry. Okay. Is it time to plug? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you can find me on twitch.tv slash smokinjoegamer, also on YouTube, also Mastodon, which is now the only social media platform I use. Mm -hmm. um, and so this week, um, well, well, this month I'm doing August Adventures, so it's basically adventure games, which is a pretty broad category, but mainly it's just any Metroidvanias I didn't cover back in May, and JRPGs I didn't cover in July, and then any other games that don't fit into those two categories. So I did Axiom Verge 2 the other day and then realized I don't 
really like it as much as the first game. It's it's a weird game. And then I did Pikmin 4 the other day because yeah, that's adventure. Sure, why not? Um, today I just bought Baldur's Gate 3, made a character, a half drow paladin Oath of Vengeance, which is what I did in a real D&D campaign years ago. So mm -hmm. started playing that and I might stream that at some point, maybe tomorrow. We'll see. So my streaming days tend to be Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. Um, I tend to start sometime between 7 and 10 o'clock and go for about an hour and a half, two hours or so. So definitely uh, check that out if uh, you want to hear a guy swear a lot when games make him angry. So. I should play Baldur's Gate 3. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so, you know, give that a look. As for uh, me and Wheels, uh, you can shoot Wheels questions on Mastodon or potentially Threads if that's the thing that yes. you do. Mastodon, Threads, and Blue Sky. Oh, uh, yeah, basically. I'll ask Wheels, and Mastodon specifically, ask Wheels at uh, Mastodon.social, which is the main instance. Should say the developers. Because we have to talk about instances we confuse on. people. <laughs> it's not that complicated. I know, but it, it's it's one layer more complicated. Linux uh, isn't complicated either, people. Learn to use a computer. <laughs> I'll get crazy. Get off my lawn. Uh, in any case, uh, but yeah, you can ask us questions that way. You can ask us questions in the chat, like Doomerang, Fireminer, and what I did this week. That's a real pleasure. It's great to hear from y'all. Uh, you can also ask us questions in the podcast section of the Discord. I believe we've now caught up with Fireminer's <laughs> Discord questions, as he had been asking. So, uh, are we sure? I I said I believe for a reason. <laughs> oh. But okay. yeah, so we we should we should be caught up. We should be caught up. I did not check the comment section like a jackass. Hopefully I didn't miss any. If I did, we'll check next week. Um, I didn't see anything in the comment section on the main page. Hmm. So, yeah. Hopefully we're good, but if not, we'll catch it next week. But uh, You can ask us questions there. You can ask us questions in the Discord, like our dear friends have. Uh, if you... Uh, have not joined the Discord, you can get there via the community tab of RP Gamer. That'll get you an invite. Even if you don't want to ask us questions, it's a lovely community. Uh, as far as... Uh, as far as the... Uh, catching us to ask us questions in the chat, you can do so by watching twitch.tv slash askwheels uh, every Thursday at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern. That's usually your best way to get a front row seat to wheels playing a game probably in a questionable, with a questionable degree of skill uh, while I ramble and other people try to get a word in edgewise. Uh, but yeah, if you wanna if you wanna catch us, that's that's your time. We also have another show, Sunday Night Shenanigans, where we do other things. We wanted to do Remnant Two last week. That did not work out as intended. Things yeah. did not go to plan. Uh, but uh, you can always try to catch us 
that will be Sundays at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern. Uh, that would be Sunday going into Monday. Uh, so. Remnant 2 again, or are we going to go back to Street Fighter? No, again? Remnant 2 again, because we didn't actually. We have to any. actually succeed. We yeah. have to actually do it. Okay. Gotcha. We can potentially do a little Street Fighter afterwards, but. Yeah. Uh, we, we gotta we gotta succeed at playing remnant this time i believe in us but yeah so that's uh that's uh that's our show so i think it is time we got on the road so see you space cowboys yeah the journey starts today